Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extracting Podcast. I'm glad to start the next series in our continued discussion of public policy in mineral oil and gas industries. And that is the subject of uh, the impact of fossil fuels on climate change and what the world is trying to do about that today. And my first guest is uh, Salim Ali. Salim is the director of the Minerals and Society program at Delaware University in the United States. He is also a member of the International Resource Panel of the United Nations. Salim, it's lovely to speak with you today and welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you so much, Sheila. I'm delighted to be part of this new venture of yours. Always great to connect with you. Fantastic. So I thought that since this is the first in the series that we ought to just lay the foundation. So could you help our listeners understand what do we mean by the term uh, or phrase climate change? Well, climate change refers to long-term changes in temperature, precipitation, and uh, wind uh, movements across the planet that uh, happen as a result of some natural processes. But certainly in the last 150 years, we now have convincing evidence that they are being caused by human processes as well. And so it's very important to differentiate climate from weather. Weather is short-term changes in the atmosphere, whereas climate change refers to these longer-term trends. And many of them are part of cyclical planetary processes. But what we are seeing in the last 150 years as a result of changes in the kinds of gases which are entering the atmosphere and causing certain uh, geochemical processes which lead to greater heat entrapment that we are actually seeing a human-generated change in climate. Hmm. That's interesting. So what you're saying is uh, environmentally, climate change happens, if you wish, naturally. But that what we are seeing is because of certain uh, man-driven, uh, if you wish, and development-driven activities, the pace of that or the scale of that is beyond what would be considered reasonable. Is that correct? That's right. Absolutely. So now the uh, impact of human contributions to climate change is, in fact, uh, cancelling some of the natural processes. So, in fact, uh, uh, we, may, we could have been very well going through a global cooling phase right now if it was just the natural processes. But because of the human-generated processes, the, the natural cooling phase is in fact being countered by uh, the level of these gases which are entrapping heat and we're seeing a warming trend. So it's actually very convincing evidence that we are seeing uh, anthropogenic climate change or, or man-driven climate change. Hmm. So in recent years, there's been a lot of focus on fossil fuels and the impact of fossil fuels on this uh, otherwise accelerated uh, process of climate change. Let's start first with fossil fuels. I mean, what do we mean by fossil fuels? And what is the relationship between uh, fossil fuels and climate change? Fossil fuels refer to those kinds of materials which are derived from ancient decomposition 
of plant and animal material which went back into the earth uh, hundreds of millions of years ago in many cases. And uh, that material, when it decays, it generates uh, certain kinds of products like coal, uh, as well as oil and, and uh, natural gas comes from further decay of those materials. And uh, so fossil fuels refers to the, uh, the extraction of those materials and using them to generate energy. And when you generate that energy, you burn the material and you release carbon dioxide and other gases. And uh, that is what is driving uh, climate change uh, from the anthropogenic side. So fossil fuels are essentially a reservoir of ancient carbon that comes from natural systems uh, like plants and animals uh, and then uh, they get sequestered in these materials and then we are using this carbon reservoir to generate energy and that's why we are uh, basically changing that balance of the natural system of decay and sequestration by releasing this uh, this uh, gas in a, a very short time frame so in terms of human intervention then do we know scientifically for a fact that this uh, extraction of fossil fuels whether it's coal oil or gas and it's its subsequent uh, process is the single largest contributor uh, of carbon emissions in the atmosphere today yes i think over the past 30 years or so the evidence is now convincing that the uh, human uh, generation of uh, fossil fuel energy has been the most significant contributor to this. Uh, the, the debate in the scientific literature is largely over and, and uh, there is consensus that human generated uh, fossil fuel emissions are resulting in this uh, climatic change that we are observing currently. And this comes yes. from past three decades of science. Initially, there was a lot of skepticism, uh, but within the scientific community, there is consensus. What, the, what will be the um, response overall in terms of uh, uh, global systems, whether the ice will melt in certain ways or not, uh, whether wind patterns will change and the level of hurricane intensity, those questions are still uncertain. But the actual warming of the global temperature on average, there is little doubt that that has been caused by human-generated climate. So, so why is there less consensus on the former issue? What, what are the differences in terms of scientific opinion? Well, there are, there are so many different variables which go into play into measuring, for example, whether glaciers are receding, uh, over time, uh, when you may get uh, a change in temperature, for example, you have uh, much more precipitation as a, a change in average temperature, that could lead to more short-term snowfall in some glacial areas. A lot of it depends on the topography, what is the landscape like, but in other places it may lead to less snowfall. And so you may have uh, some glaciers which are going to recede and there's clear evidence of a lot of glaciers, especially um, in, um, in the Alps in Europe, which are receding. Uh, but uh, in other places, uh, you may have a short-term gain. So 
there are lots of different variables which go into those kinds of ca calculations. Um, but uh, over time, in the long run, with warming, there is little doubt that we will get more glacial melt, we will get more sea level rise, we will get uh, a general change in vegetation patterns moving towards uh, the polar regions. Uh, so there's going to be definitely that long-term change. But in the short term, you will get these spikes and uh, you will get uh, different trends that may confuse people. But that should not be uh, allowed to change our overall focus on the global trend of climatic change leading to massive uh, adaptive responses if humanity is going to be able to live the way we are used to. So you've used the term uh, global quite a lot, uh, which portrays the image of a common humanitarian, if you wish, uh, an environmental potential uh, disaster because of global uh, warming. Uh, and yet I've heard uh, and read in literature that uh, the global north and the global south differ in terms of uh, their contribution to the problem and potentially their contribution to the solution. Could, could you tell us uh, where the line of divide is and what the, the issues are that separate these two areas of the globe? Well, I think the vulnerabilities of the global south are a function of economic inequality and the lack of resources to respond to climate change. Uh, I think climate change, despite all of the impacts that are going to occur, is, uh, is possible for humanity to manage and adapt to if we have the resources and invest in, the, in, in that adaptation. Of course, if we change our behaviors, it will make the adaptive response much more feasible. But if we do not have resources, as we do not in the case of the South, then it makes that adaptation all the more difficult and challenging. So uh, the, 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 the tragedy of climate change is that the global south has not been the contributor to the emissions that led to climate change. But because it is a global phenomenon, they are the ones who are going to suffer just as much in terms of um, the climate change uh, temperatures and so on. And in many cases, they are going to suffer more because they do not have the adaptive response. Whereas the Northern countries, which caused a lot of this problem, the, the rich countries, uh, they are going to have the resources to respond. And we have seen this in just the current pandemic where the response uh, from the developed countries in terms of vaccination and so on has been much faster because they had the resources to respond. Whereas countries which did not, they have not been able to adapt uh, and are, are potentially going to be impacted. And, you know, for a short period of time, we felt that uh, the, the developing countries were actually going to fare better than developed countries because they had natural immunity. But we found that even a small vulnerability can shift that balance. So the tragedy we saw in India then just in March and April of this year has shown that you cannot be sanguine about the state of the developing world uh, because even very small changes in, in the system can create a massive impact then if you are a vulnerable mm. country. True. So, I mean, 
You've spoken about the difference in terms of capacity uh, to respond and, and, and the difference in terms of both economic and environmental, I guess, resilience. Uh, but my understanding of things, Salim, and, and I need you to, to set me straight here, is that in effect, not only has the global north historically done more damage, but if we are environmentally going to strike a better balance going forward, uh, the south potentially, the wetlands, the forests, and other natural land areas are more likely to be the source of this balance. Is that correct? Uh, well, yes, definitely there is uh, opportunity for natural systems uh, uh, to be able to counter some of the impacts of climate change. So certainly forest systems by uh, making sure that we, we do not deforest as much and that we plant more trees, we can sequester more carbon. And a lot of the developing countries have the forest, they have the solutions, the nature-based solutions, as we say, are there in the developing world. Uh, countries like Brazil, which have in the enormous Amazon rainforest, uh, has tremendous potential to mitigate climate change. Um, but sadly, what we've seen in Brazil, for example, in the last year is then a recent study that was just published um, uh, reinforced this concern that because of deforestation and the burning of the forest, the Amazon contributed more carbon than actually sequestered. Uh, and so this is the, the, the tragedy again of the developing world is because there is not enough economic resilience, it's very easy for people who are desperate to then rush to use resources in a way which is harming the planet. And one cannot blame them because they are doing it out of desperation for livelihoods. And um, so the, the issue of global inequality, you know, is very much connected to environmental justice and making sure that the whole planetary system can be sustained more equitably. So based on what we know, um, what, are, what is the current consensus on how to address uh, this issue? I, I believe this is embedded in part in the Paris Agreement. What is the broad outline of the Paris Agreement? Well, you know, I think one has to look at this at multiple levels of action. The Paris Agreement in and of itself is not going to solve the problem because with any of these huge multilateral agreements, you to reach consensus, you have to make a lot of compromises. And the compromises that are made are not always aligned with science. So the, the challenge with climate change is that there are tipping points in natural systems. And if you go beyond a certain threshold, you have a cascading effect and it's very difficult then to stop that process of change. Just like you have a ball at the top of a hill and once it starts rolling down, it's very difficult to stop it without a much greater level of action. And at the international system like the Paris Agreement where there has been this consensus reached on 1.5 degrees uh, temperature uh, mitigation, uh, that in and of itself is not going to solve the whole problem. And so local action, behavioral change, transitioning away from fossil fuels uh, at multiple scales is going to be needed. And we are seeing a lot of the best 
work in this regard is happening in cities, that cities themselves, mayors of cities, local government are making that commitment and action, even if the, the national governments are not able to do so. So as when we saw with the United States during the previous uh, administration pulled out of the Paris Agreement, many cities in the US remained committed and they continued. And so much as it's good to have some kind of global conversation through international environmental treaties like the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which led to the Paris Agreement, uh, I think a lot of the action that's going to have major impact will have to come from the local government areas. Where, where the Paris Agreement um, is going to be effective is definitely helping developing countries reach those targets. So the international mm -hmm. community, the role that I think is most effective at the multilateral level is to actually help those countries that will need those resources to adapt. That's where I see its role more so than just in emissions reduction. Hmm. So two things. First of all, the the notion that uh, action is likely to be more effective at local level is, is a subject I'm not able to comment on, except this, uh, Salim, isn't that feasible in countries like the United States where you have federated systems and, and, and uh, states and cities with resources? Surely that scenario isn't necessarily transferable in a small African state. Uh, is is that uh, correct to to assume that that model isn't a one size fits all? And well, I think that there's a lot of wonderful community uh, mobilization in Africa as well, and you saw that from the work of Wangari Maathai, the famous Nobel laureate in, uh, from Kenya, who started the Green Belt movement. That was a grassroots movement to plant trees all across Africa. And that was a huge contribution to reducing climate change impact in Africa, both from the point of view of sequestering carbon, but also reducing erosion, land degradation. So uh, I think that the, the power of local communities have, is possible across the board, regardless of the political system. Uh, now, definitely in terms of channeling aid and making sure that there is some level of uh, infrastructure planning to adapt. You do need government intervention at times, but I would certainly not underestimate the power of the grassroots, even in um, communities which may seem to be much more hierarchical. Hmm. So you mentioned also that, of course, uh, during the previous administration in the United States, that uh, country withdrew from the Paris Agreement. And, and I, I, I mean, the Paris Agreement, like all agreements is voluntary, nobody can be coerced to sign or stay. But what does that tell us about the potential instability of these agreements to the extent that they are essential for us to tackle the climate change problem? Well, the challenge with international environmental law is that it is not enforceable. You know, we live mm. in a system of international uh, law more generally, but especially international environmental law, where there is no enforcement action. So when the U.S. withdrew, there was nothing the world could do. You can't really impose sanctions on the U.S. for withdrawing. Uh, there are no cases really where there has been clarity of any kind of action against a country that doesn't comply with international environmental laws. Whereas in the only area where you have some level of um, 
of accountability is with international trade law because with trade you know with the world trade organization there's a dispute resolution mechanism and there are ways in which some greater sanctions can be imposed um or with the un security council there are processes for sanctions but with environmental systems none of that has been exercised really so um that is the challenge uh, and so that a lot of it then has to rely on voluntary compliance of countries with these commitments that they make. Uh, but they can unilaterally withdraw. We saw that with the UN Convention on Desertification that Canada withdrew from that at one time during the Harper administration. Uh, and then the US did this with the, uh, with the Climate Change Conventions, uh, Paris Agreement. So, uh, this is going to be a recurring problem, and that's one of the reasons why I, I, I feel that we cannot just rely on the multilateral system. We need to have a much more nuanced approach across different tiers. Mm, because, you know, in your earlier statement, you commented on the lack of capacity and lack of resilience of uh, countries in the South. Uh, now you juxtapose that with the capacity and uh, potential resilience in the North, but perhaps not political will to go in that direction. So uh, it, it that seems to leave a, a big loophole there in terms of us being able to address climate change, doesn't it, uh, Salim? Yes, absolutely. It's what we call a wicked problem in political science, you know, where uh, getting consensus at the global level is very challenging and the impacts are at the local level. Uh, there are multiple causal uh, mechanisms as well at play. Uh, so um, the, that's why it, a, a wicked problem needs a much more multifaceted approach to solving. And uh, that, that is why individual behavior, uh, eco-literacy, making sure that the individual consumer is aware of all of the different impacts is just as important as the macro level changes. And you need a convergence then, and then you can fill that loophole uh, because you are able to get convergence from top down and bottom up uh, processes much more effectively. It's it's interesting you should uh, speak of consumers because uh, we spoke about the extraction and then the processing and the emission that follows and the impact of these uh, emissions on uh, the world's uh, temperature, et cetera, et cetera. I, I wonder when we think of uh, fossil fuels and their carbon footprint, is, is the focus of science in the, if you wish, upstream, the extraction and the processing? Or are we factoring in the user end, which is the actual consumption of the energy? And do we know uh, if we compare the two where the biggest problem lies? Well, there is a system for carbon accounting that's called the, uh, the greenhouse gas protocol. Uh, and they have three levels of tracking emissions, scope one, scope two, and scope three. Scope one emissions are the direct carbon emissions that come from the production of any material. So if you're um, you know, physically burning some kind of material that's going to cause uh, carbon dioxide emissions, that's scope one. Scope two is the energy sources you are using to uh, make the product and where that energy comes from. Is that energy coming from carbon intensive sources? 
And then scope three is looking at the whole supply chain of all the materials which go into your product and to see where the carbon footprint is of each of those components of the supply chain. So there's a very complex system of carbon accounting which has been set up to track all of these different emissions. And uh, uh, clearly the energy sector right now is the most dominant one uh, in terms of carbon uh, emissions because we still are burning a lot of coal to generate electricity. And uh, that is true of China, it's true of the United States, it's actually been true even of Germany recently because Germany decided to transition away from nuclear power and that decision has made uh, it a major fossil fuel consumer until they are able to find other resources. And, and that, that's another concern I have is that the climate change conversation um, uh, has made uh, a lot of rash decision-making on the part of uh, countries which, uh, you know, they, they could have uh, been much more, uh, I would say, systems-oriented when looking at uh, issues like nuclear power, because nuclear power is, in fact, a way to solve climate change, but because of certain other risk factors that were not scientifically communicated, unfortunately, uh, we have had a move away from nuclear power. So because of that, you have a much bigger imprint of this transition of fossil fuel usage in places like Germany, um, whereas nuclear power uh, could have prevented that. So you are seeing more and more climate scientists actually cause, calling for more investment in nuclear power because when you have energy usage, you need two kinds of, you need a baseload energy and you need also um, the energy supply for uh, peaks and troughs when you have you know, a sudden surge in demand. Uh, and um, solar and wind are currently, there. you cannot use them for baseload power. For baseload power, reliable power, you, you need to use uh, either fossil fuels or you need nuclear currently, uh, or you need very high level of battery storage. And uh, unfortunately, uh, a few of these nuclear accidents like Fukushima have made people averse to nuclear power completely. Uh, even though if you actually look at the data, the, the risk factor of human mortality from nuclear power has been far less than from fossil fuels and from even wind and solar in some cases. Um, so, you know, like the Fukushima disaster, uh, people forget that not a single person actually in the community was killed from the Fukushima meltdown itself. The people who died were because of the tsunami. Uh, and yet, you know, because of that one incident, you had this massive shift globally in terms of nuclear power. So that's one of my areas of concern is that uh, risk assessment has not been very well managed during this climate change transition policy making. So, so when you, you project forward, what do you think are the, the risks of us, if you wish, uh, moving too quickly before we have investigated all the options to factor in the the, the solution with respect to the Paris Agreement, because my sense is that you're not alone, albeit your, your reasons may be different. There have been other critics who feel that the pace of things is not uh, consistent with reality or for that matter, the options that are very 
realistically available to us? Yes, uh, I think uh, we need to be very clear about um, the, um, the level of uh, consensus that is needed to uh, have some kind of direct action. So, you know, there are other avenues also at play. We have the G7 countries, we have the G20 countries. Uh, there are other kinds of international mechanisms which need to be employed to make sure that we are able to have fast but efficient and science-based uh, decision-making. And I'm increasingly looking towards some of these kinds of multilateral arrangements, not just the United Nations, but because United Nations with 193 countries is much more difficult to gain consensus than G20, the 20 you know, largest uh, economies of the world, which uh, account for 85% of economic activity, um, you know, getting consensus there and then still having a big impact because they are generating also around 85% of the world's pollution and other issues related to economic development. Uh, I think that's where we should be moving towards in the multilateral arena. But you, you, in a way, you contradict yourself because uh, you have already said uh, that uh, you know, there's in terms of environmental systems, there there isn't uh, much bite. There's a lot of bug, but in terms of the capacity to enforce, you know, there is a gap. Uh, and you gave the example of both Canada previously and then the United States. And so how yeah. in the face of that, uh, Salim, can we still place our trust and confidence in these uh, uh, leaders of the larger economies in the face of uh, the disintegration that we periodically see? Yeah, no, I mean, I do, I'm not contradicting myself at the level of the, the United Nations system. My, con my concern is that the United Nations system, it, it is uh, because of the scale of the involvement, we have to be more measured in our expectations with that. But the G20 and the G7 uh, or the G7 plus one, as they're called, because you are dealing with a smaller decision-making number, you have more potential for getting some kind of enforceable action than you do with the UN system. So um, right now, uh, you know, we have a system whereby there's a chairing of the G7, G20 regularly by uh, on a revolving basis. And uh, uh, those countries who are chairing it, they set the agenda. And uh, I think there could be agreements signed under those kinds of mechanisms where it will be much easier to get enforcement because it's a smaller group of countries. Uh, it mm. has not yet been tried as much. Uh, this year, the UK is chairing the G7 and it's also chairing the climate change meeting in Glasgow at the end of the year. So it's an interesting opportunity for the UK to see what they can do through the G7 and the Glasgow meeting collectively. Next year, Indonesia will be chairing the G20. This year, Italy is chairing G20. So let's see, you know, these are relatively new multilateral bodies. I see more hope for them uh, moving forward in also driving some of these more enforceable multilateral actions. 
Hmm. The, I mean, we, we've spoken about the G7, the G20 and the North. What is the trend in the South, the, the less uh, powerful emerging market nations? Uh, is there any consistency or any trend that we is observable in terms of how compliant these countries are uh, with their commitments to the Paris Agreement, for instance? Well, first of all, the G20 does include major developing countries. You know, it includes South Africa, it includes um, Brazil, it includes China, it includes India, Indonesia. You know, so G20 is a very interesting group because it does include a lot of the major developing countries. So it, it's not just a north-south divide. That's one of the reasons why I have hope for the G20. Um, G7 is more an exclusive northern club. Um, but um, uh, I think the, the, the goal should be that uh, we, we recognize some of the ways in which development has been operationalized and how countries have moved from being developing to developed. And we have some really good examples of that. We have South Korea, we have Chile, uh, we have Malaysia. You know, I think these countries provide a model so that it doesn't become this perennial north-south as always. It's not static, it's dynamic. And I think that would really help us drive the agenda in a much more constructive way. Yeah, but that was not my question. My question was, uh, you know, countries in the south have signed on to the Paris Agreement. Uh, what are yes. we observing in terms of them being able to walk the talk uh, and, 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 and show commitment, uh, all things equal? Uh, I think in terms of those countries walking the talk, they, they, they are seeing the advantages of the win-win options first. So for example, those countries which have not had electrification in the South as much, they are going to leapfrog towards more renewable energy sources. And you are seeing that in many parts of Sub-Saharan Africa already. So that would be the first step is the win-win options for leapfrogging from old technologies to new technologies. We saw that with uh, telecommunications, where many countries went from having no phones to cell phones. Uh, I think that's the same kind of logic that should be applied for climate change in terms of the green transition. Uh, in, in other cases, they will need assistance. And we have two major entities that have been created for that. The Green Climate Fund, which was created out of the Copenhagen Climate Change Meeting, that has a commitment to reach $100 billion a year in assistance for climate-related transition for developing countries. So that's very promising. And uh, we have the, the major adaptation fund that was set up also uh, under um, the Paris Agreement and its various permutations. And uh, that's going to help with specifically adaptation. So. Uh, and then we have the existing global environmental facility, which is itself a major multilateral trust fund. So all of those aspects, I think, are going to help in terms of the South. Hmm. Here's my last question to you, Salim. And it has to, to do, again, with the, the geopolitics. So some people argue that uh, the apparent uh, lack of stability and the apparent uh, you know, lack of commitment by countries like the United States who are here today and, and, and gone tomorrow 
creates a vacuum uh, that could potentially be occupied by China who may wish to, for you know, reasons of enlightened self-interest, assume moral authority. And, and that, that might uh, motivate China to move faster towards uh, the transition uh, exercise. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, China, because the political system is different, they can be much more nimble in terms of deciding on change. And, uh, but, uh, but at the same time, there is the trade-off there that they do not often get as much uh, public participation. And so if they do things right, they can do them fast. But if they do things wrong, they can also do them fast. So uh, I think China has shown that with reference to its transition to renewable energy, it's been much faster. Its mass transit has been much faster uh, in terms of transitioning away from uh, other modes of travel. But at the same time, um, the US remains a technological leader in, in, uh, in, in other areas uh, and uh, it's going to, and, and especially, for example, in um, uh, some of the the, um, uh, the the traditional infrastructure technologies uh, for electricity generation and so on, U.S. continues to be, uh, you know, very much ahead. But at the same time, uh, we we are seeing this kind of unfortunate competition between the two on. Um, on ascendance more generally, and that can have a negative impact in terms of climate change collaboration. Now, President Biden has made a commitment to uh, collaborate with China on climate change, and we saw that there was participation at this climate change summit in April from China. Uh, and uh, there are efforts underway currently to, to see if there can be a a, a coordinated effort between the US and China, especially with reference to the developing world, because China has the Belt and Road Initiative, which is in many ways a major kind of development outreach effort for China to also gain access to resources. Um, and the US has said that that could be an area if you have a more of a greening of the Belt and Road Initiative, whereby there is greater coordination on aid programs to developing countries, with the US and China, that could be a way forward. But on the technology side, it seems there's going to be continued competition. Uh, and um, in some areas, China is going to exceed. Uh, and in some areas, the US is going to excel. That's fantastic. Well, uh, we could, of course, uh, spend uh, a lot more time. But uh, here and now, uh, Let's leave it at that, Salim. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. I think we have uh, certainly laid the foundation for follow-up discussions with uh, my guests over the next couple of weeks. Thank you very much. It was nice having you on the Sheila Karma Extractive Podcast. Thank you, Sheila. Pleasure to connect with your audience and you. All the best.